Welcome to the Brentwood Church Audio Podcast. As always, you can jump on over to BrentwoodChurch.org or your favorite social outlet where you can find Brentwood Church and see what God is doing in this community. Now let's take a listen to this week's teaching. We're at. We are we are obsessed. We're a community obsessed with Jesus Christ. Can I get a witness? Let me do that. Okay, and you would be too if you had known how much he radically changed everything. And we're in a season on our calendar right now. If you're with me, that you look back and if you grew up in a church context, you know exactly what it's like to be given green construction paper this morning in children's church and start cutting out the palm branch to then wave on your way out. And you know that. It's Psalm, it's Palm Sunday, right? It's Palm Sunday. And we look back into history in the first century and the miracles that happened back then. And what happened is so important for us to understand today. And so this week in Palm Sunday and next week in Easter. Anybody, anybody know next week's Easter? Yeah, call your moms. Call your mom. Write that down right now. Call your mom. Tell her you love her. Grandma too. Um, and send your dad something cool. Uh, all this stuff, man, we have to understand what happened centuries ago to understand what we're doing right now and why it's important. So we're going to look back on these two stories, these two miraculous stories and say, God, what do you have there that I need to know here? Okay. Can we do that? Cool. I'm Kevin. If I haven't met you, um, I, I play host pastor here at Forest and I get a chance to play connection pastor in my master role at Brentwood. And it's a lot of fun. I help get people plugged in places where you may not feel like you need to be plugged in there or you really want to be, um, but we believe in biblical community. It's so important for us. So this morning is a first step for some of you guys. As you watch and you understand what this community believes and our obsession about Jesus, I hope you can sit back there with a doubt and a skeptic's mentality and say, they get it and I see what they're doing. It's not for me yet, but I see what they're doing. And I want to invite you to do that. Jesus did that. Right? Jesus did that. You guys familiar with the story of Matthew 16? Jesus had these disciples. There was this group of people that would, that would travel around with him. And inside the disciple clan, he had some reformists, which we all have. He had some rebels. And even in his crew, he had some of the religious folk. And he had people that he brought along with him along this journey. And, and frequently throughout this journey, he would look at them and he would say stuff that tested them. And in Matthew 16, he tested them and he said, who does everybody say that I am? And the disciples looked at him and they said a couple different things. They say this and they say this and they say this. And then Jesus pointed it back at them again and said, no, okay, so who do you say that I am? What about you? And remarkably, the disciples got it right. It doesn't happen very often, but they got it right. They were able to say, Jesus, you, you are God and you are king and you've come to rescue us. And they got it right. And this morning and in this series, we're going to look at each other and we're just going to ask each other, who do you say that Jesus is? Who does your life communicate to everybody you interact with who Jesus is? What are your words aligning with that? And could we improve there? Can we go farther? So where we're going to be this morning is Matthew 21. We're going to go through 11 verses there. And we're going to look at this account of Palm Sunday and start there. So you can turn there and stick your finger in there. I have a couple, uh, I have a couple addictive things in my life. Like the healthy addictive. Like maybe just at the edge, but not quite over. And one of those is soccer. 
It is an absolute obsession for me. I, I, I love the game. And if you don't love the game, I will pray for you. Because it is a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, and I want all Americans to finally give in to their anti-American naturality and go back to Europe and see where the game is played at its finest and understand it. And I love this thing. I love the game. I absolutely do. If you, you better completely avoid talking to me about anything about soccer unless you want to get on a long discussion. And if you want to talk about the game, that'd be awesome. Formation intricacies or how global economics actually mimic uh, global rivalries between clubs and countries. We can talk about all those things. And I love this game. I've been playing it for two and a half decades of my life. The first two decades were really competitive. The last half, not so much. (laughs) This body is older than the number on its birth certificate. And I've done things to my body I'm not proud of. And all in the name of the game I love still. And if you're not familiar with soccer, I was a goalkeeper. Uh, so they're the person, and I'm a, sorry I'm going to talk down to you, but you're American. Um, the goalkeeper stands in the way of the castle to make sure the opposing forces don't capture the princess. You with me so far? Okay, so, so he's standing there protecting the boundaries, saying, if all of his forces and all ten other men fail him, that's my baggage, if they fail him and they're attacking the fort, you're going to become the sole person to block and save everything. Or, if you miss, you're the goat. There's two choices. You're either the hero or the goat. There's no in between because you're the last line of defense. So it demands sometimes as you're playing in goal that you actually have to propel yourself like an eagle flying beautifully to the heights of all things holy. And you're throwing whatever body part you can in the way to block and to save the other team from scoring. Right? And as you're flying like an eagle and as you're taking off and people are cheering and they know what's happening, Everybody knows as you fly, you also have to come down just like a big pile of laundry being thrown down the basement stairs. And it hurts. (laughs) If you use the right technique, it just hurts less. It doesn't not hurt. It just hurts less. And so over years and years of competitive soccer, I've used this body to do just that. And it has worn on me and worn on me and worn on me to the point where I, at one point, in my final year of soccer in fall 2007, was not getting out of my bed and standing up in the morning. I had deteriorated my body so badly that I would stand up and I would forget and I would stand and my body would say no and I'd find myself on the ground. And my ankles were locking up and hurting so, so badly uh, that it would take hours to get them warmed up throughout the morning just to live a normal life. And in 2007, I sat in the orthopedic specialist room and I sat there because I had, again, tortured something. And, uh, and, and in my feet, there were these problems that caused me to have to get an x-ray. And the orthopedic, surgeon, the orthopedic specialist walks in, and she's got the x-rays in her hand, and she looks up and she says, Whoa, you're a lot younger than I thought. From your x-rays, I thought you were at least 60 or 65. And as a 21-year-old, I'm sitting there thinking, Wow, I can't believe I just paid for that life coaching. Isn't that awful? And I'm sitting there thinking, what are you telling me? And I knew it. But you're kind of looking for that excuse still, like, okay, so how many years left do I have before you kill me emotionally? Um, How many more years can I really do this? And and how many more can I keep going? And and then the story ends with her basically saying, you you just got to make a choice. And I knew my choice was this. I was picturing in that moment, it's seared in my head, I was picturing that moment, this opportunity to be in a wheelchair and help my child grow up. Or to choose to walk. (laughs) 
And my body was telling me very clearly that my, my future was going to look a little different than I had originally anticipated. Because when you play at a certain level, your next step, that next level demands more from you. And I just didn't have it anymore. I didn't have it. And as my friends and as my teammates in that last year, we're all going chasing professional contracts and doing the things that some of them are still employed doing today. My entire soccer career did not end in that room, but but the end of that year it was done. And it was left with what if at the end. You know what I'm saying? The, The what ifs that we say, those momentous decisions defined everything else for us in our life, but we still go back and think, what if I would have taken the other decision and just tried it? What if? Or, or maybe, maybe if I just found another way or really tried to heal my body when I was young, which you could take my advice, it's worth it. Um, it, maybe it would have been a different reality for me, but it wasn't. It, I, well, I didn't get that chance. So my entire history of soccer ends with a big what if and one cataclysmic missed opportunity. And I think we come to this room today and I speak boldly that we all have our own things. The own things that we got so far into and we love so much. And at the very end, they ended with giant what if statements. And for you, maybe it's a little different because for me, it's soccer and it's so trivial to so many of you. Um, and we can fight later. And, but for me, it's, you know, my story is mine, but yours may be this. It might be, God, why did you take my mom so early? Why did you make me go through those terrible, terrible years where I didn't have a female role model in my home to lead me through them? And God, why is, is we as a couple, we were so excited for our baby to come, but now instead of in our arms, a child, we have emptiness. God, why couldn't have you let it happen? You know, my marriage and my things that, that I thought were in order are not in order anymore. Why did I make that financial choice? Or, or why did I cheat like that? Or why did I do that thing? And the what ifs and the maybe ifs and the maybe I should have tried something different all keep piling up. And if we brought them all here, we could have an amazing bonfire. Because we've all got them. We've all got those things of guilt. We've got those things that we don't want to own. And we all brought them internally in here today. And this story of missed opportunity is exactly what Matthew 21 is talking about. And as we go and we look back into the first century, we're going to see very clearly what Jesus is trying to communicate and what he's doing here. And it's a familiar story, so it always comes with this warning. We're going to get into some detail, and we're going to start dissecting a little bit. And we're going to come back out and we're going to summarize. But don't get lost knowing what you think you know. Because there's something different in this story you might have not seen before. Matthew 21, verse 1. Let's go. Matthew 21. Uh, We get there in the context of the story is this. Jesus and his disciples are traveling because they did that a lot. And because they were going to a place called Jerusalem. If you're not familiar with Jerusalem, it is the place. If anything spiritual, anything groundbreaking was going to happen in this culture to this people, it was going to happen in Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples are traveling towards Jerusalem. It's a journey that they are on. And it says, verse 1 of Matthew 21, it says, Now when they, Jesus and the disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So summarize that for me. 
Jesus sent his two disciples to go steal. Not too hard, right? Let's keep going. This took place to fulfill what the spoken of the prophet. It says, say to the daughters of Zion, which is, which is a phrase used for the Jewish nation at this point, the daughters of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt and on the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Are you frustrated yet? I get frustrated when I read scripture like this. And I want to give you permission to be frustrated because I've told you this story is important. And yet Matthew has taken seven out of 11 verses because you're like me and you're doing the math and you're thinking there's only 11, something better happened that's important here. Because seven is so before, he seems like Matthew's addicted to this donkey, (laughs) which is creepy because Matthew is one of Jesus's disciples. And it makes you start questioning Jesus's friend choices at this point. You think whatever his obsession with the donkey is, it certainly doesn't appear healthy. So what's with the donkey, Matthew? And the story is really important. This story shows up in all four Gospels. Not even Jesus' birth comes in all four Gospels. It's a story written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's an important story in the livelihood of Jesus. And we have to get what's important here. And yet we're framed, if you read it like I do, you're reading through this and you're like, seven verses on a donkey? It better have something cool. Like you Virginians, you love your, your specialized name tags. Surely this donkey had one made like for the king, right? <laughs> there was a name tag Rachel and I passed one day, my wife Rachel. Um, we, uh, we passed it and it was like 1-N-O-U-C-E-N. And you're reading it like, what is that? It finally hit us, innocent. Oh, his grammar wasn't, but his license plate said innocent. And like, certainly, this must be, it must be a billboard for when the police is following him that he's declaring his innocence, certainly. So I don't know what it is about Virginia, but you see this all over the place, the, the specialized name tag. So certainly this donkey must have had something cool about it, right? Maybe a chrome accents or just the right amount of hair and just the right shape that it fit perfectly. I don't know what it is, but it's weird. You look at Matthew and you're like, this is weird. Why are you obsessed with the donkey? And we've got to get this. You hear that accent there, the Shrek accent? Try it. Say donkey without saying it like Shrek. You've you, you got to get the donkey. You've got to understand the donkey. And here's what it is, okay? You look back and, and there's so much going on. Look back at verse 5. You see what it says there? It says, the prophet said this. Behold, your king is coming on a donkey, on a foal, on a colt, a beast of burden. Jesus, if you look where that is written in the Old Testament, it's in Zechariah, which was written 500 years before Jesus. 500 years. Five centuries before this is happening, Zechariah said, it's going to happen. I can't even proclaim my lunch to be that specific. But Zechariah, through the, through the inklings of God and writing down through the through the power of his Holy Spirit. He's writing this and saying, Behold, your king will come on a donkey. It'll come on a beast of burden. It will come like this. And it happened. The very first, most important thing we see about this donkey is that Jesus is answering the prophecy that was written before, proclaiming that he is the Messiah. He's the one this whole nation has been waiting generations and generations for. He is the one that's going to come and deliver them. He's the one that's going to overthrow the tyranny. He's going to be the one. 
And the second thing we see is this. Jesus is, Jesus is power over creation. Have you guys ever tried to sit on something that doesn't want to be sat on? Terrible question, unless you're a younger brother. And that makes sense, because I was bigger than my older sister. And I would frequently, we would, we would wrestle, and I, would, I was so annoying and such a pest, and I'm sorry, Melissa. But uh, I would sit on her, and I was a lot heavier. And you never sit on something that doesn't want to be sit on, that, and it won't fight back. I've never raised a donkey my whole life. Surprise. I'm from Detroit. Okay? I've never raised a, hor- a horse my whole life. Never broken an animal. I've never, I don't get that. But I know what it's like when creation says, if I don't want to be sat on, I will put up a fight. That's natural. It happens with humans. It happens with animals. And you look at Jesus in the story, and you look back in these verses, and you never once, Jesus brings this cult who's never been written on, written on, and they put his cloak on him, and Jesus sits on it. And there's never once a single sign of resistance from this cult. It's as if the cult knew what was happening. It's as if this cult knew exactly who his creator was. And when he got in the presence of his creator, the creation knew it. And it obeyed. And Jesus brought this cult who had never been ridden, who had never been broken. And there's not a single sign of resistance. And there's a second character in this story that's doing the exact same thing. You have somebody who has raised this donkey and this colt together. And when not even Jesus' personal personhood shows up, but just his word through his disciples, he obeys. It says he did it at once. Jesus has dominion over his creation. He is in control and he can command and he demands authority from all those things he has created. That's why the donkey is important. So he's proclaiming to be the Messiah. He's proclaiming to be the king. And he's showing his dominion over the creative world and the people. And then last but not least, you can't miss this one. If you were a first century king, which I know you've all thought through, so this is, I'll just repeat it. If you were a first century king and you were to come back from battle, you would never choose a donkey to ride on. You would choose something more prestigious, something expounding more strength and more victory. And you would choose a horse, a horse as symbol of war, A horse as power and of strength and of might and of violence and of taking. And yet, you see Zechariah say about this donkey, no, 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 he is coming on a full, a beast of burden. A donkey is a servant, represents the servanthood. And in these elements that you see along the way, you see Jesus becoming the king and proclaiming his messiahship. And it's very obvious in front of people that, that he has control over this and he's got control over people. And when he asks, when the creator asks, the creation gives. And in the end, he is using a different mindset. He is not using a war horse to come into Jerusalem and to take over. He is using a donkey, a symbol of submission and a symbol of servanthood. Jesus does everything different. You've got to know that. You've got to know. So as we keep reading, we're going to get into the last next couple of verses, eight and nine. You've got to understand that Jesus is doing everything different and everybody there got it. Well, look at verse eight. What's the first word? Most. <laughs> Most everybody got it. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And if you're like me, there's a little bit more frustration there, right? 
Because <laughs> you're like, okay, I get the donkey. That took a long time to explain, but I get it now. But what about the cloaks and the branches? And what about all these other things? Like, what is going on here? If this is such an important story, make sense of it. And it's this. If you took off your coat in the first century, you see in 2 Kings 9, there's another example of this. They took off their outer garment, their cloak, and they laid it on the ground. It's a physical act of submission saying, this person is royalty. It's a royal homage being paid to somebody that you say, they are my king. They are who I would take and sacrifice my garment for before they can walk through. And then secondly, the branches. In John's account, you, you see that they're palm branches. They're palm branches. You think of a palm tree, right? I, I grew up in Detroit. So again, a little unfamiliar to me. But when I watched all those crazy storms come through, crazy Floridians, and you're, and you're waiting for the hurricane to level your country down there, um, you see the palm trees just so happy, right? Still waving in the weather. And you think, that must be Bob Ross's favorite tree. You can't put a single frowny face on a palm tree. They're just so happy. And they just bring peace. And they give shade. When, the, when Florida heat is just unbearable, they just give great shade. And you look at all this and you say, okay, I get it. Revelation 7 confirms that the palm tree was used in a sign of victory. And victory, what happens is you have this battle and this fight, whether it's personal or physical. And when you get victory, what happens next? Peace. You get peace. Wholeness. Establish peace. And the palm tree is a sign of peace and of celebration. So this whole story, this whole story in context, you're looking at this whole thing, and it's an undeniable moment of incredible celebration. You look at the donkey, and Jesus proclaiming he is king, he is Messiah, and he's coming boldly into the city. And the cloaks, people laying it down saying, we get it, we understand, you are the king. And then the branches saying, it's victory, Praise God. He is the son of David. He's in the lineage of our greatest king, David. He is the son of David. Blessed be. He comes in the name of the Lord and the power of God. And it's undeniable in this story that people see that. And they're celebrating that. And it's a party. That's Matthew's account. Right? So you look at there's a picture uh, depicting this. And this is how I always knew it growing up. This is how I always knew Palm Sunday. You see the palm branches, and you see the children, and you see the bowing down, and you see the hands, and you see the light, and it's surrounding Jesus, and you're thinking, surely this is the most celebratory moment where he's not fighting the crowds, and he's not slaying demons, and he's not doing those things, but he's walking in in the most celebratory and, and happy and victorious moment of all of his life. And you've been in those moments, right? Rachel and I, we have a, we have a one-year-old. He's 16 months old. His name's Kai. And, uh, and Kai is a joy. And I want to apologize to his childcare worker because I just went and said hi to him and I made him cry as I left. So I'm sorry. It's my fault. But Kai is usually a very happy child. And when we planned his first birthday, uh, I told Rachel, I want some details that I want as the dad. And I made a terrible choice, but uh, I want some details there that I just want. And so I asked for a beanie. Can you put a beanie on him? Because a beanie seemed to me to be happy. And I said, make it have a propeller. <laughs> I didn't get it. I was missing something at that point. And it was just a busy time in life. And so we, he had a lot of fun. And it was a one-year-old will do. He just crawls around doing his thing with his beanie propeller hat on. And his cousins thought it was amazing because they would come up and spin it as he went. And they thought it was a lot of fun. And as the birthday goes on, you've been a part of that. If you've been a first-time parent and you've got way into the details like we did. But you start planning all this stuff. And it's an undeniably celebratory time. And you guys know where the first birthday ends, where the climax of the whole story is. 
Where is it? The cake. And I said, Rachel, I really want my dad to make this cake. He makes phenomenal cakes. And they taste good and, lo- and they look good. So they made a cupcake uh, for him, which seemed to be appropriate size, even though it was half of his body weight. And uh, we put the cupcake on the tray. And, and it's the scene where we're in a big room and he's in the corner. And he's in the direct firing line of all these digital devices ready to go off and to capture this moment. And we're sitting in the room and it, and it never really occurred to me until that moment. I wonder what Kai's thinking as he's been fishing under the cabinets today and just walking around in his beanie. I wonder what he's thinking. And he took that cupcake and he was very clearly going to tell us what he was thinking in a minute. And he took it and I don't know whose child he was because he turned it over and started eating the cake. I'm thinking, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and eventually he puts it back down and, and, he, and he somehow finds the frosting. I think somebody put it on his mouth. And, uh, and he, he looks at it and he takes it straight over his mouth and his nose with two hands. And as he does it, I look at Rachel and I think, is he breathing? <laughs> his eyes are very happy, but it's obviously constru- <laughs> it's blocking his nose and his mouth. And as he's going intravenous on this cupcake, we look at each other and we think, uh, we're going to have to take it away from him. I'm not sure he can consume all of this. This is a little big here. And, uh, and as Rachel proudly steps up and she grabs his arms in the cupcake, and my previously always happy child, as she pulls it away, floods the entire room with tears that said, you are not my parents. <laughs> And in that moment of incredible great celebration, we look at Kai. And as he started going from joy to just weeping and anger in that place where you're like, I don't know if we can get this one back. We might just have to call this party off right now. Uh, It was that moment where we finally realized what he was thinking. He was communicating it to us. In our story of Jesus, we've left and we're returning to is so similar to that. You you have this undeniably celebratory time. And as that picture is there, when we look straight in the middle of that and we see Jesus on top of the donkey, doesn't it make you start thinking, what is he thinking? Because we haven't talked about him to this point. We've talked about the people and the donkey and the clothes outside of his word to demand the colt. We haven't talked about him. We've seen the donkey and the colt and the branches, and that's usually where we leave it, focused on the people. And I want to take a new turn on this, what you may have missed before and say, what is Jesus thinking? And luckily in Luke 19, as we turn there, Luke 19, 41, Luke accounts exactly what Jesus is thinking. And it's exactly what you would expect. Luke nineteen forty one, And when he drew near, he saw the city, Jerusalem. So they've been on the trail, the donkey, the branches, the cloaks. And when they get near, not there yet, when they get near, He looked at it, the city, and he wept over it. I gave you a little foretaste with my story. But you have Jesus in an undeniably celebratory time, weeping. Isn't that weird? No one else? You have the branches and the yelling and the hosannas, and you have Jesus weeping. And it's only the second time in Scripture, the scarcity makes this an important moment. It's the second time in Scripture we actually see, it says, Jesus wept. You know the other one. It was really easy to memorize as a kid. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. That's it. Write that one down. It's easy. 
And it's talking about Lazarus and his, and his friend had died and Jesus wept over that. And in this story, he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. And there's lots of other emotions that come out the rest of this week as we get to the cross and to death and to the burial and Jesus' resurrection. But here it's noted that he just weeps. He says to Jerusalem, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Jesus is prophesying from the top of a donkey in the midst of this crowd of celebration the destruction of the city that he's going to. And then 30 years later, the exact thing happens in the fall of Jerusalem. The exact thing that he said would happen, happens. So you have Jesus in this scenario. He's sitting on top of a donkey and he's coming into the city. And you'd expect there to be celebration and understanding of his kingship and his coming and his peace. And he's weeping. He says, if only you would have known the things that make for peace. And peace there is more important than just no war. It's deeper than that. It's the completeness you have when you fully confess to somebody else. And you're no longer living a fractured life, but you're living a whole and completed life. It's like peace of mind more than just peace of violence. It's that meaning that when you have fully understood who you are in Christ, that he takes you with your warts and your frailties and all those things, you can be at peace because I don't have to be perfect. He gets it. It's that level of peace. It's that deeper peace, that peace of mind, that completeness. He said, oh, that you would have known Jerusalem. Oh, that you would have known Jerusalem. What makes for peace? Only if you would have known what makes for peace of mind. But because you don't, a physical destruction is upon you. And it's going to happen to this generation. And I think it's the very last line of verse 44 where it ends there, because that we've got to get Because this scene doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet. Because you're saying, aren't they the people that celebrated? But he's telling them they don't understand what makes for peace, peace of mind, completeness, wholeness. What? What is there? And the very last sentence in verse 44 says this. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. And that last line is everything. Because the only person that can bring peace is not me. It's not anyone else, but a divine God. He's the only one that can forgive you completely of your sins. He's the only one that sustains that from this day into the next day into the next day. Only God in his visitation brings the type of peace. So in the midst of obviously Jesus is saying they missed, what they missed was not that he was going to bring physical relief from the tyranny happening in Jerusalem, but they missed as they're saying, Jesus, Jesus, we see you. Hosanna to you, son of David. They're expecting something not at the level that he's saying to them. They're expecting a physical deliverance. And he said, I want your heart. I want to go deeper with you. And I want you to understand what makes for real peace. And I want you to understand your time, your visitation, when God came to this earth in Jesus' form and wants to deliver that peace in your life. And they missed it. They absolutely missed it. This whole story is a story of missed opportunity. 
The visitation was there physically, and they missed it. Matthew 21, verses 8, or excuse me, 9 and, or 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, he finally gets there. The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The whole city got stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. <laughs> These are the people. It's the prophet Jesus. This is it's who he is. It's his name. It's his human name. It's his Jewish name there. They don't call him God, as his disciples did when they looked at him. They didn't call him Savior. They missed it. They didn't get it. And we arrive at this moment together, and we look at these people's story, and we say, they got the donkey and the branches and the cloak, and they understood what he was doing, yet they still missed their time of visitation. For these would be the people that would one day proclaim Hosanna, and the end of the week they would join the embittered crowd and yell, crucify him. And they missed it. You guys know what Jesus' name means? When the angel appears to Mary in the New Testament, he says this to her. He says, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And we arrive at today's bottom line in Jesus' name. Because of his name, we know that today Jesus saves right now. You might look back. You might look back at a lot of stuff in your life. And you may look at the back, at the past, and your missed opportunities like these people are doing. And you look and you say, but Jesus saves right now. Jesus saves right now. And you see the difference between the past and today? You see that difference? You know what the difference is? My soccer career is completely defined. It's done. It's in the past. It's completed. It's a fully missed opportunity at this point. And every now and then when I still get out and I, and I, and I stretch appropriately, which doesn't happen often, but when I actually get my legs going and, and I actually do something and I fly and I feel that moment before I hit the ground of ecstasy, I still think, maybe I got it. Maybe I can do it. But I know the truth. The whole past, I can't go back and redefine that and try to capture that again. It's completed. It's completely defined. But what makes now different is that it's not. Because Jesus saves right now. He gets the things you've brought in here today. He gets my things. And Brentwood Church, we are not naive enough to think that our lives are so in order like our outfits and our attitudes. I know too much about you. You know too much about me. We're too honest here. We've got to be honest about who we really are in front of God. And though our lives in the past may look like, hey, there was that thing that happened and I don't know what to do now. Jesus saves right now. And as I look at you, and I know some of your stories are that same thing, like I said earlier, you know, why did mom pass away so early? Why did I have to go through that? But Jesus gives complete guidance and wants to heal us completely right now. And we look back and you say, God, why was the emptiness so deep? Why is our empty arms so profound that it takes over everything and it's stressing everything in my life? And God says, I understand for I was with you then. And I want to save this moment and all the rest of them right now. And so we keep going back to those scenarios of, I don't know what it is for you, but you certainly do. And maybe that's why is my marriage so helpless when I hear these stories of reconciliation? I can't get there. 
They're not willing. And you look and say, listen, that past is defined and you can't change it right now. But Jesus wants to save and he wants to come and he wants to bring you legitimate and real peace right now. He wants to bring you a peace of mind that comes with completely submitting to him. And that goes for you that have been watching so far today and you don't follow Christ and you don't ascribe to this. And you say, that's not my thing. It goes for you is the same way that Jesus wants to save you right now and for all eternity, he wants to claim you as his child because when he's on top of that donkey and he's weeping for the city, he is not weeping in anger. No, he's weeping in empathy. He's weeping. He said, oh, that you would have known. Oh, that you would have come to Jerusalem and understood what makes for peace. But you didn't get it. You missed it. And I, I just, I want you to understand today, Brentwood Church, this is a moment that Jesus wants to save in your life right now. Don't miss this time when he's visiting us. And for those of you that have followed Christ for a long time, and you're in that place where you know that Jesus Christ has been on your lips, but your life is just a little different, and you're living with that extra baggage that you know you're not meant to carry, because he wants to bring you full peace and peace of mind, completeness and wholeness, not a fractured life. And I know what you bring in here because I bring it in here every week. It's been really challenging for me to get into these scriptures and to look at what God's doing here because I come from a heritage. I come from a long line of addicts and abuses, abusives. And I have been shaped over my entire eternity uh, for bad decisions, terribly bad, heinous decisions. And then some really awesome and really amazing decisions too. And that's my past. It's fully defined. But I know the gravity of what I feel now as a first-time father, a 16-month-old and another one on the way coming in September, that I have a choice to look at this moment and say, God, I can't change that. I am who I am because of that. But you want to save this moment right now. So would you take it all and give that peace? This is my joy to be able to share this scripture with you because it's meant so much to me but I want you to respond this way. I want you to look. And when you see Jesus Christ on top of the donkey, I want you to look with new eyes. And instead of like the people responded in verses 10 and 11, instead of responding and say, who is this guy? They said, oh, that's Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. No, no, no. I want you to understand this differently. I want you to look at a top of that man on top of the donkey and say, no, who Jesus is to me, that's my savior. That, he's changed everything. And though my past is riddled with missed opportunities and problems and constraints that I can no longer go and fix, Jesus wants to save me right now. He's more than just the conqueror coming into the city. He is a God that has conquered your heart and wants to come after you. You get that? Absolutely. It's Jesus Christ and only him that can bring the peace that you so desperately want today. So we're going to open a moment. And in church, in church world, I'll explain it to you. We often call people forward. Because we want to provide a moment where God, through the art of music and understanding what he's doing in your heart, where you can own a moment where you can respond publicly and your family in this room right now can surround you and pray for you. So we're opening this front up and, and, and opening these chairs and come kneel in these chairs as we sing. And this is the call. This is the invitation. If you've never given your life to Christ before, only he can save you. It hasn't worked for you to save you yet. I want you to come and I want you to respond to his calling in your life this morning because he brought you here even though you've been watching the whole time.
He's doing something in you. And I want you to respond today. Make this your moment that you say, Jesus, save me right now. And as you come forward and you sit down here or you stand here, you're going to be praying and you don't know what to say. Just say what's ever on your mind. Say what you've been wrestling with. And if people are going to come and pray behind you and they're going to put their hands on your shoulders because that's what we do as family. We support each other. And they're going to pray for you. And of course, they're not going to be able to hear you. Our music's way too loud. But they're going to pray over you. And when the song is done, if you want to stand up and, and proclaim to them what happened in you today or what was you're struggling with. In the first service, I was talking to a girl and it was that exact same thing saying, I just feel this distance from God that I don't know how to solve, but I want to merit today as my, as, my, as my point where I stop moving away from him and I start coming back to him. And that's my second invitation for you. If you're in the point today where you know you don't have peace, you know you're not settled, you know you're carrying more than you were, you were designed to carry. I want you to come too. And we're going to open it up this, this front for all kinds of people that just want to have a holy, intentional step forward with God today. And the body is going to come and pray over you as we go. And when we're done singing, you can return to your seats. You can go back. You do whatever you feel like is right for you. But we want to open this up and just say, come, I invite you to do that. And Brentwood Church, as your family is vulnerable, and those whom you love that you sit next to, as they're praying and they're standing and they're singing and they're giving their all to God because they're looking at a man on top of a donkey and saying, that's my savior because he's saved today and he's gonna save me tomorrow and anything else that I cannot anticipate, he is there because he's been there the whole time. I want you to pray for them too because we're a church, which means we're a family and that's what family does. Would you stand and sing with me right now?